Welcome to Warrington Bible Fellowship. Here's an interesting question for our day and time. Does knowing the end of the story affect our reactions to those around us? Should it? How did it impact the disciples? These are the kinds of questions that Pastor John will ask us today in his message called Betrayed and Denied from Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 53. And a reminder, as always, to subscribe to our channel and even share this video so that others can hear this wonderful meditation on the Word of God and hear this beautiful music and sing praises to our Lord. God bless you. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 22. We're getting back to our series, uh, God's Love for Everyone. Um, we'll be in verses 47 through 62 today. And while you're turning there, uh, let me ask you, how many of you have seen Star Wars? Almost everybody. Usually I fall down on this, so thank you. I remember the first time, you know, this was a family event for us. We saw the first movie. It was fantastic. It was exciting space opera type thing. Uh, large story. We went and saw the second. By the time we got to the third movie, uh, this was an event. And we bought midnight tickets on the Thursday night before it was was uh, released officially so that we could see it at 12.01 on Friday, first showing. We all went down to Dulles Town Center and watched it. And so we're watching the movie. We're all wrapped up in it. And right near the end, James Earl Jones, in the most famous part he ever had, in which you never see him, says this line, Luke, I have your father. And we're all like, <gasps> What just happened? How can Darth Vader be Luke? You know, I'm sorry, there were a few of you that haven't seen the movie. So on the way home, it's like 3 a.m. We're all like, what just happened? Did you believe them? Blah, 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 and on and on and on. And the fact of the matter is, when we sat down and started watching the beginning of the show, we didn't know the end of the story. And I wonder how we would have reacted to the movie if we knew what the end of the story looks like. So this is the question for you this morning, is how do we act when we know the end of the story? The last time we got together in Luke, uh, we began a three-part series based on verses 39 through 62, um, and we heard what happens when we hear no. We saw Jesus place his will below that of the Father. And his response when he asked for something and didn't get it was to draw closer to the Father and go deeper in prayer. That was part one. And we saw in that the power of prayer. And, and what we should understand is when we go that deep into prayer, God gives us the tools that we need to get through the situations that we encounter. So today we're going to look at the power of darkness. We'll look at the power of prayer. This is the power of darkness, moving in 47 through 53, and how it can be overwhelming. So this sermon is Denied and Betrayed, part two. Part three will be, we'll see the powerless Peter, and that'll come up next week in 54 through 62. So our passage for today, uh, the power of darkness has three 
primary events in it. We have an arrest in 47 through 48. We have the reaction of the disciples in verse 49 and 50. And then we have this rebuke that happens in verses 51 through 53. So let's take a look at this first event, the arrest of Jesus Christ, starting in verse 47. Verse 47 says, while he was still speaking, now he's talking to the disciples. The last we heard about him, they were asleep, but apparently he has, has woke them up. And what, what's echoing in their minds as they begin to pay attention to what he's saying is he told them, pray that you might not enter into temptation. Now, we all know that that's a, a tenet for the Christian life. Don't go into temptation. So we understand that, and we go, okay, I'm ready for it. But the question is, what happens when the temptation arrives? How do we react to the temptation when it's sitting on our doorstep? So it's easy to anticipate and, uh, temptation, but it's not so easy to deal with it when it comes. Because we're not, we're not, you know, Satan's not sitting on our shoulder going, do something bad. He's saying, do something good. It sounds good. It looks good. And it wouldn't be temptation if we didn't want to do it. Would it? So while he was still speaking, there came... Now, I love the King James Version here. It says, behold. Behold. Behold a crowd. And, you know, when we see behold in the Bible, it's telling us to pay close attention. There's something very important happening. Focus in on this. Watch carefully what's happening. So there's a crowd. It's the middle of the night. Where'd this crowd come from? I mean, this is not the culture. Jerusalem was crowded with maybe a million, maybe a million and a half people, but it wasn't a giant party. They were here for a holy observance and a festival and a feast later on. So they would have gone to sleep. They didn't have the street lights on. The bars weren't open. <laughs> so it would have been a quiet night in the city, and there's this crowd. Where did the crowd come from? Well, some of them were Roman soldiers. But there were others there as well. And what we find out is in the description of the crowd, they're a mob. They're angry. They're disorderly. Now, how did they become a mob? Now, we need to think about this carefully. Somebody incited them. Somebody got them riled up. They didn't just get together and go, oh, let's be angry. Somebody went to some people somewhere and, I mean, you know, there's some conjecture here. It's not here in the Scripture, but you know how this happens. Somebody went to a group of people that were supporters of them. Maybe they were familiar with them. And just got them worked up. Got them angry. Do you know what's going on down there across the Kidron Valley in the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus and His followers are plotting the overthrow. We need to stop them. They're going to create problems with the Romans for us. You know what happens when we've got problems with the Romans. They're going to come in. They're going to start killing people. We've got to do something. And by the time that little talk is over, they're riled up and ready to go in the middle of the night. Crowd. Oh, where did the people come from? A little bit later, another verse or two, we're going to find out they're led by the chief priests, the officers of the temple, the elders. The crowd 
is led by those people that claim to be holy, who profess to be godly people. But so far in Luke, in the entire narrative of Luke, there's not one shred of evidence that any of these people are God's children. It's not there. And all of their actions, everything they've done, seem to betray that, that claim that they make. Now listen carefully to me, because there's a lot we can learn from this, in particular in this charged atmosphere that we're in. We've got to be careful not to hang the Christian tag on politicians and pundits and talking heads that say they're Christian, but have no evidence of being Christian, have no testimony. Don't quote Scripture. As a matter of fact, a lot of what they do is to get people riled up. This is not the Holy Spirit. We have people that claim to be godly. Never share a word of testimony. Never exhibit any godly traits. But unnecessarily stoke anger and division and tension and doubt and suspicion and frustration and all the things that come along with the environment that we're in today. So what happens when that happens? Well, all you got to do is look at the crowd here in front of Jesus. Because what they bring with them is all of those things. There's anger, division, violence even. And look who's with them. Right out in front of the whole crowd. A man called Judas. One of the twelve. Verse 47 says he was leading them. You know, the name Judas was popular in the first century. You don't have a lot of people hovering over the, the, the incubation period where, where the babies are saying, let's call him Judas. But back then, it was a great name. Everybody, a lot of people named Judas. We have four or five of them in the Bible. It, it comes from the root word for Judah which is kind of ironic, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Judah was instrumental in convincing his brothers to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. You see that in Genesis 37. Judas, our primary character in this passage today, isn't too different from his namesake. He's selling Jesus to the Romans. What do you think? What do you think motivated Judas to do this? Was he trying to get Jesus to tip his hand? Some people go, oh, Jesus, Judas knew that Jesus was the Son of God. He's just trying to force his hand here. I don't think so. Was he trying to make money? Well, maybe. We know he was a thief. That shows up in John chapter 12. Or, and, and here's my theory. I think his expectations were dashed. I think he was in it to see what was going on. Probably started with fairly good intentions. But he was a thief at heart, which made him a liar at heart. And my question is, was, was Judas following Jesus for what he could get? Or was he there for what he could give? Now, if, if he was following Jesus for what he could get, by this particular point in Holy Week, he would have been sorely disappointed. 
Jesus made it clear in the few hours preceding this moment in the garden here that his disciples were going to lead lives of sacrifice. Luke 22, 26 said, But not so with you, he's talking to the disciples. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. He told them it wouldn't be an easy life. So, Luke 9, 23, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He showed them that they would not always get their way. That's what happened when he prayed. Father, if you, you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You know, today is not easy and it's not popular to hear people say that the Christian life may not be carefree may not be as easy as everybody would try to have us believe. It might not be as prosperous as some would say. And it might not be about you and me getting our way. And it might not even be about us. Well, I don't know. If Jesus came to die, if I was the only one on earth, Jesus would have died on the cross for me. That's probably true, but that's not the focus of why he died. This is all about God. It's not about us. It's about God. It's about the gospel. It's about the church. It's about being the light of the world. And, and sometimes when we hear that, we kind of envision in our minds that we've got our own little private candle that lights our area, makes us feel warm and secure. There's some truth to that. But it's not about our own private candle, our own individual candle. It's so that we can see uh, it is about being a light in the middle of darkness. It's about being a light in the middle of darkness that envelops the entire world around us. And being that light so that the other people that do not know Jesus Christ can see Christ in us. By the revelation of Jesus Christ as Savior. Well, how does that impact you right now? What do you think about that? What goes through your head when you hear that my salvation is about God and not about me? How does it make you feel to know that God does all this for His sake? For the sake of the gospel? He saves us not because He desperately wants us to be with Him, Oh, Jesus died just to get you in heaven. He wants you there. I'm afraid that that's a large part of the message of the evangelical church today. It's all about you. I got to tell you, personally, I like it. I like everything being all about me. But it never seems to work out very well for me when I take that attitude. not because he desperately wants to be with us but because he wants us to be messengers of his love he wants us to point people around us towards him not us I can tell you how this message impacted Judas right there in the next verse in our text he drew near to Jesus to kiss him an act of painful betrayal. 
brought on by someone that Jesus poured his life into, invested in, sealed by a sign of close, intimate friendship. Can anything be more brutal than to have somebody that's so close to you do something so painful? It's vicious. Verse 48, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? He's just reminding Jesus that, that who he is and what he's come to do. Using this expression of love to betray Jesus, Jesus reminds Judas that he's a son of man, that he's a representative for all mankind. Paul calls him the second Adam. The second Adam. Does it twice in Romans, 1 Corinthians. And the results of Judas's betrayal are going to be that the son of man dies for those he came to save. You see what's being put in motion here? Just as the first Adam, the first representative for mankind, dropped the ball, failed to obey God, as all of us do, the second Adam is now perfectly obedient and will represent all those who believe in him before the Father. And this betrayal is part of that plan. God's not sitting in heaven going, Oh no, Judas betrayed Jesus. We know that. Because Jesus has already told the disciples, one of you will betray me. It's the one who eats from this dish with me. Hands the dish to Judas. So the arrest of Jesus commences with a kiss, a horrific, hypocritical, unholy kiss. And isn't it true that the most painful things that happen in our lives are commonly perpetrated by those people who are closest to us? Those people that aren't close to us really can't hurt us that bad, can they? Oh, they can say something rude and our feelings can be hurt, but I'm talking about that heartbreaking, heart-crushing betrayal that makes us reassess everything around us. It only comes from the people closest to us. Have you been hurt? you've been devastated by someone close someone you trusted someone you believed in someone that you loved someone you opened up your heart to made yourself vulnerable to Jesus Jesus knows that pain he went through it I mean Judas is just the most obvious one but in a few minutes everybody's going to go running he's going to be alone Jesus feels the pain that you feel when you're betrayed. And he takes that pain with you to the Father, where healing begins. So the mob and the Romans move in. Matthew and Mark tell us that they've got swords and clubs, and the situation is electrically charged. Adrenaline is flowing all over the place. Everybody involved knows that this is a really big moment. What's going to happen? People are holding their breath. Thoughts are beginning to fly all over the place. And that leads us to our second event, the reaction of Christ, the reaction of the disciples in 49 and 50. And, and those people around Jesus react typically. I, I mean, there's nothing wrong with them. We would probably react about the same way. Their Lord is in trouble. 
This is a bad situation. They're looking at each other. Somebody needs to do something. We can't just stand here and let this happen. Somebody needs to do something. And they start talking the same way the people that incited the mob were talking. We can't let that happen. Somebody needs to do something. Well, we're the only ones here. Let's do something. So the mob comes up against the same attitude that they carry in this confrontation. It doesn't matter that Jesus told them that all of this was going to happen. They're not going to stand by and do nothing. Jesus needs their help. And look what they do, 49. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? This is what the swords are about, right? We were just talking about swords. We got two of them. Let's wait in here and start the battle. They're thinking that that must be why he wanted to know whether or not they were going to have swords. We have a sword. We must be prepared to fight. And that impression is so overpowering and makes such good sense, doesn't it? It seems pretty reasonable right there on the surface if we didn't hear what Jesus said prior to that. If we don't know what happened in the rest of the book, this is all making great sense. It makes such good sense that someone leaps into action before they hear the answer. This is what happens when we try to reason with Scripture. When we try to make Scripture make sense to us. Everything Jesus has shown the disciples up to this moment, everything he's taught, everything he's equipped them with, has said, we're not here to fight. But in the heat of this moment, in this electrically charged moment, when it looks like fighting is the only option, they decide to jump in and save the Lord. Even if it looks like he's not going to save himself, they're going to do it for him. And then it happens. Then you have this, this incredible moment, force is used in defending the Lord. Verse 50, And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now, the one wielding the sword is Peter. No big surprise there. He cuts off the ear of Malchus, a servant of the high priest. You just need to think about this for a second. It's just a few words. But there's an incredible degree of violence in here. Peter has to use his sword. I don't know if he swung it, if he grabbed the guy's ear, but this is one-on-one combat. And blood is being shed. And in one brief moment, it looks like the followers of Christ are just no different than the mob. Matter of fact, they're more violent. See, the disciples' reaction was this. If the crowd is going to use force to take something from me, then I'm going to use force to take it back. And I'm justified in doing that because God's on our side. Wow. So here we are. In the most pivotal moment in the ministry of Christ so far, in his earthly ministry. He's been rejected by the, earth, by the establishment, the religious establishment. He's been abandoned by the multitudes that were following him. The crowd was pretty small at this point that were faithful to him. 
And what is this pivotal moment characterized by? Brutal violence. And so far, the more brutal part of the violence comes not from the mob, but from Jesus' followers. It's an incredible moment. The reaction of the disciples is to fight. Well, what does Jesus think of this? I mean, he's the one being arrested. And the irony is, he's totally, completely innocent. He's completely pure. He's come to save the very people that are about to torture him and kill him. How does he react when his followers go on the offensive? And that takes us to our third event, the rebuke in 51 through 53. In verse 51, it says, But Jesus said, No more of this. Now, this is, this is the second rebuke in this passage that Jesus gives to his disciples. First one is in verse 38, when, where the disciples so proudly said, Oh, look, we've got two swords. Jesus says, It is enough then. But there's the same sentiment here in verse 51. It's enough of this foolishness. What do you think you're doing? Did I tell you to do that? You, haven't you learned anything that I've told you yet? I've told you here that I've come here to save people, not to cut their ears off and beat them up. Rough night for the disciples. And then, and then Jesus does something that I got, it's got to be mind-blowing for everybody there. Malchus is lying on the ground. He's bleeding. His ear's gone. His life is changed irretrievably from this moment. Who knows if he can hear? Who knows if he's going to bleed to death? And Jesus bends down over Peter's victim, and he touched his ear and healed him. Can you imagine what that moment looked like to the disciples? Now, they've seen miracles before. But these are the bad guys. Can you imagine what was going through their heads? Can you imagine what was going through the heads of the mob? Think about Malchus. Am I doing the right thing? <laughs> I mean, he had to. What just happened? I thought, I thought he was our enemy. Why would he do this? Doesn't diffuse the mob's anger, but I'll bet you I'll bet you made everybody hesitate for a minute. See, in Luke chapter six, Jesus taught his followers to love their enemies. And right here, he shows us what that looks like. He didn't come to vanquish the Romans. He didn't come to beat up the Pharisees or anyone else. If that was his goal, it would have happened right there, right at that moment. But Jesus already told the disciples that he would be handed over to the authorities, tortured, and killed. And they, they seem to have forgotten. They just don't remember. And I, I think we can understand that when things get exciting. We're not always thinking clearly. We're not always thinking about what happens. Frequently, we see a problem. We want to jump in and fix it. Verse 52, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders, look at the grouping here, chief priests, officers of the temples, and the elders. What we have here is a religious establishment, the military establishment, and the civil leadership. 
said these who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? Jesus points, that, points out that they're coming at him like he's some kind of common criminal. Which begs the question, when have they seen him do criminal behavior? Yeah, he's had some confrontations with the Pharisees. And yes, he threw over the tables in the temple, but he wasn't there to injure anybody. He wasn't there to hurt anybody. He explained everything he was doing. When have they seen him act violently? Who has he injured? As a matter of fact, he just healed one of them. Verse 53, when I was with you day after day in the temple, Jesus speaking, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour, the power of darkness. Why now? Because this hour is the power of darkness, and it has the capability Listen carefully. It has the capability to turn men into monsters. The power of darkness. It can do this even to believers. When we feel so overwhelmed by our circumstances that we begin to ignore our teaching and take things into our own hands. That's what's being demonstrated here. I mean, isn't that what the mob did? Uh, they're Jews. They know what the Messiah looks like, what he sounds like, but they're taking things in their own hands. And they come up against a group of believers that decide to do the same thing. Where's this headed? I, I wonder, in these incredibly tense and divisive and angry and sometimes violent times, how many of us are tempted to take things into our own hands? to set aside everything we know about the Bible and everything we know about Jesus' teaching and defend, defend God. Defend the church. Do you think the church needs to be defended? Doesn't God tell us that the church is here in Revelation? You think God needs to be defended? Does he need our help? particular does he need to be defended with anger and violence it's a question we need to answer because everything around us tells us that that's the appropriate response to people that don't agree with us so we've seen these three events we've seen the arrest a mob stirred up by talking heads right no tv no cable end but the talking heads would appear at the gates of the city in the centers of the city, and tell everybody what to think and how to react. Spurred into action by an, an invisible and non-existent threat, worked up about something that's not happening, half lies and half truths, incited into violence. Then we've seen the reaction of the disciples. The, re, the, the disciples react to all this violence, was even greater violence. Where did they think that was going to go? And even more importantly, what is Jesus' reaction to their actions? And we see that in the rebuke. He told them to cool their jets. The one time that we see the disciples react violently against the establishment, Jesus not only tells them to put away their swords, but he undoes the damage that they did. And he performs what will become the last miracle in his ministry is to heal one of the people that's come to carry him away. <laughs> Which act 
Which of those two acts do you think had a greater impact on the people in the mob? The violence coming from Peter and his sword or the healing from Christ? Like I said, it's an incredible moment. And look what we've learned here. Jesus portrays this betrayal with a kiss. The disciples don't comprehend the events. They look to defend Jesus with violence. And in contrast to the use of force and the threatening attitude of the people that have come to re- arrest him, Jesus exercises compassion, healing the ear of a wounded enemy. And in doing so, he displays the love that he exhorted the disciples to have in chapter 6 of Luke. Time of darkness has come. It's descended upon them and it seems to engulf them and overwhelm them. But Jesus continues to love. He's the dominant figure in this whole thing. Everything revolves around him. And even though he submits to the Jewish authorities and faces trial and death, and he knows it's coming. He knows that they're going to torture him. He knows that they're going to hang him on a cross. Yet, he submits to him. Oh my. Oh my. What do we do with that? We've got so many people saying you shouldn't submit to the authorities. They're lying to you. They're going to hurt you. Jesus is saying, yeah, I know how that feels. But he has something bigger in mind. He has something greater in mind. Jesus agonizes in the garden, yet he moves towards God's plan, doing what he's supposed to do, doing what he's been called to do. He's come to terms with the pain that it's going to take to accomplish God's will and work within it. And he does all this because Jesus knows the end of the story. He's shared the end of the story with all those who believe in him, yet right now they're acting like they never heard it. After seeing the third Star Wars movie, we bought the director's cut. And Kelly was off on a wedding one Sunday, and Jason and I, Jason was probably 13, 14 years old. We used to move the chairs in the dining room, sit them in front of the TV, make popcorn, put drapes on the windows and everything, pretend we were in a movie. We watched all three movies, did a Star Wars trilogy marathon, and by this time, I knew the end of the story. And so instead of spoiling the story for me, Jason went through the same thing, we began to see all of the clues that were interspersed throughout the entire trilogy. And we began saying to ourselves, how come we didn't know this? Why didn't we know this? If we'd known this the first time, we would have enjoyed the story even more. So it really, really is some brilliant movie making. So in our passage today, we see Jesus showing mercy. And he's showing mercy to some really bad people. And, you know, that, that doesn't compute well for us. 
So did, did he show them mercy because they were bad? Huh. If we didn't know the end of the story, we might easily be confused by that. Doesn't seem to be consistent with what we expect from Jesus. It might cause us to believe that we might try to make that right, that we could fix that by withholding mercy, withholding grace from people that we think are bad. But the end of the story, the end of the Bible, this is why why we have classes like Apollo. This is why we're constantly encouraging you to read your Bible. By the time we've read the entire council of Scripture and taken a look at all the clues sprinkled through it, tells us that Jesus showed them mercy not because they were bad brothers and sisters, but because we were. We were. And Jesus is making all these sacrifices because God has planned a way to be reconciled back to Him so that we could live forever. And Jesus is willing to endure the torture and the suffering that these evil people inflict upon Him for you and me. So that we could be saved. And these foolish people are trying to save Him from saving them. Uh, these are some tough questions for us to ask ourselves today. What are we going to save the church from? What are we going to save God from? Brothers and sisters, we need to be thankful that Jesus went through all this, that did it, healed Malchus's ear so that you and I could be saved, so that he could go to the cross and die there bearing our sins so that we could live with him forever. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that your story is filled with such glory. And although, although there are times when it's hard to understand it, Father, uh, although there are times when it's hard for us to embrace all of it and receive the end of the story, we know, Father, that your Spirit resides in us, so we pray, Father, that he would have his way with us, Lord, whispering in our ear the ways of Jesus Christ, not the ways of man. May we be delivered from those things that we find reasonable and delivered into your miraculous, mystical presence, Father, that leads us and guides us and saves us forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in on us. We'll be back next week. Thanks. It's great to have the congregation here. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Have a great day.